James Abbott McNeil Whistler was an American painter who made his reputation over in England. He famously sued one of his harshest critics for a bad review and won. It was a libel suit that Whistler possibly filed in order to drum up publicity. John Ruskin savaged Whistler's paintings for being glorified sketches, saying that they looked unfinished. Whistler made the suit about his artistry, arguing that his unsentimental abstractions captured the mood and feeling that neoclassical techniques could not. This wasn't an entirely open and shut case, even if you considered a bad review to be libel, because Ruskin was a champion of J.M.W. Turner, an earlier painter who was even more abstract than Whistler was. But the most oft-repeated segment in the trial was when Whistler was asked how long it took him to finish a painting. When Whistler said it only took him two days, he was then asked if two days' labor was worth the prices he commanded. No, Whistler responded. I ask it for the knowledge I have gained in a lifetime. Now, the reason I bring up this exchange is because I think it speaks to how the layman approaches art criticism. We all want to see something that looks labored upon, and we are all impressed by meticulous craft, uh, often, in some cases especially, when we aren't intimately familiar with what went into it. And I think that's why stop-motion animation has such a profound effect on me. It looks very handmade, it seems incredibly personal, and the lengthy, tedious hours that go into the process make every product a result of someone's intense passion. Stop-motion cannot accommodate the weekend warrior like certain other crafts can. So, no matter how beautiful or also equally labored upon the, the vistas and something like Zootopia or Up can be, there is a, a certain vibe presented by the claymation stuff that, yeah, it scratches an itch that nothing else can. So for this episode, we're covering three shorts starring Wallace and Gromit, arguably the most beloved characters associated with these animation techniques. Uh, my name is Ryan, this is A Real Deep Dive. And I'm Rachel back again, and uh, Wallace and Gromit were my pick, even though they're characters that we're both very fond of. I mean, who doesn't like them? People who don't like claymation, probably. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, we're doing the first three, even though it was a fourth short, and you, you insisted on leaving it out. I don't know, I think, not that I insisted on leaving it out, but I feel like these three are, like, probably would make the best episode. The fourth one is actually, like, really dark, and I think it's more a than the other ones because they fight a serial killer in that one. It was made sometime later, so the people who grew up with Wallace and Crom were a bit older at that period. Maybe that went into the thinking? Yeah, maybe a bit. Like, A Matter of Loaf and Death, I like it, but to me it doesn't hold a candle to the first three or even Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which is their feature-length movie, which I really like. Yeah, I think it's good too, but uh, yeah, some people don't. Wallace and Gromit seem to work better in shorts. But, uh, yeah, give it a breakdown. Uh, Wallace and Gromit is a British claymation comedy franchise created by Nick Park for Arvin Animations. Its lead character is a cheery, oblivious, and cheese-obsessed inventor named <laughs> Wallace. His dog, the mute yet still anthropomorphic Gromit, is the precocious, supportive sidekick who often gets his master out of tight scrapes. Yeah, it's like, uh, Gromit, sorry, all of them I make all of the inventions, but Gromit is the one that saves the day every time. Wallace and Gromit have become internationally beloved figures and have been argued as British cultural icons on the same level as, say, the Beatles, Doctor Who, Monty Python, James Bond, or, well, he's taken a couple of hits lately, but Harry Potter. <laughs>
Paddington Bear, maybe. (laughs) I was just thinking of a couple of years ago, the British hosted the Olympics and their opening ceremony was just a cavalcade of the various British pop culture institutions that have spread out over the world and in so doing have been chipper cultural ambassadors. So when lots of people think of England, their first thoughts are the Spice Girls as opposed to... Colonialism? Yeah, 19th century colonialism. And as an American, I'd like to learn that secret, you know, asking for a friend. Yeah, I mean, that was a pretty memorable... Olympics opening show because they had the Queen, quote unquote, jump out of a helicopter with James Bond, which was actually pretty fucking funny. That's the thing. James Bond is an internationally beloved British cultural icon, even though he very much is a symbol of the imperialism. Yeah, but that's another episode. Yeah, I talked about in previous episodes (laughs) how Ian Fleming used that character as a fantasy as the UK became less and less important on the international <laughs> stage. But well yeah, yeah, let's Walls get into it. Yeah, Nick Park began the first Wallace and Gromit short, A Grand Day Out, as a student film in 1982. He based Wallace loosely upon his father, an incurable tinkerer who built a homemade trailer for his family beach trips, amongst other things. <laughs> oh, that's Cute. Gromit got his name after uh, Nick Park's brother, who was an electrician. Nick liked the way uh, the word Gromit sounded, so he just decided that was going to be the it's dog's kind name. Of bolt, I think. Yes, for insulation purposes. On a whim, Park offered Peter Salas 50 pounds to voice Wallace and was shocked when Salas accepted, you know, because yeah. he was the college student. Yeah, and Peter Salas, he's like a, a beloved character. Well, he was, he has since passed, but a beloved character actor. Um, from Britain, and he was on the TV show Last of the Summer Wine, which lasted, like, 30-plus years. Now, at the top of his resume is Wallace and Gromit, yeah. but, yeah, he, he didn't know this kid from Adam. He didn't think it was going to go anywhere, but I, I guess, on a whim, he's like, I'll give the kid a chance. It's only an afternoon. Mm-hmm. Park initially imagined Wallace with a Lancastrian accent, but Salas could only pull off a Yorkshire voice. It's very difficult to believe that the Yorkshire wasn't baked into the character from the jump, but... Uh, yeah, I know. That's what, that's what I was thinking of. He's a cultural icon. Park gave Wallace puffy cheeks when he heard how Salas drew out his enunciation of cheese. Cheese, Gromit! <laughs> it is, it does make me think of, like, scrunched up cheeks. Though. Yeah, no good part there. I mean, he has them anyway. The character talks and moves. Gromit was at first also going to be a talking character. Park wanted to voice Gromit himself, but then recorded lines with uh, actor Peter Hawkins. However, Park scrapped them when he decided that the character was funnier, expressing himself solely through facial expressions and body language. Always got that big old brow. Yeah, and his ears. And also, Gromit doesn't have a mouth. I feel like if one character talked through a mouth, and then you had another character who talked and didn't have a mouth, That'd be kind of weird. I was under the assumption that Gromit's mouth was removed after he decided that this character doesn't talk, but I don't know that for yeah, 100% maybe. sure. Oof. A Grand Day Out took six years to animate. Most of it was done by Park working completely alone. However, there are five credited assistants. Mm 
Uh, there was to be a scene where Wallace and Gromit discovered a fast food restaurant on the moon, but Park cut it out when he realized that it would take an additional number of years to animate that sequence by himself. Yeah, and also I feel like it doesn't need it. I think a little robot worked well enough. Yeah, 40 minutes is a long running time considering how sparse the plot for this thing is. Yeah. In 1985, Park landed a job at Ardman. He only had 10 minutes of footage completed at this point. Ardman would let him work on the film in between his other projects, such as working on Peter Gabriel's music video for Sledgehammer, mm -hmm. which that's one of those songs that's completely impossible to divorce from the music video. Oh, and, yes, I agree. And uh, yeah, it's super cool that Ardman worked on that. You can definitely see little Parkisms in there. Uh -huh. Yeah, for them. I think I gotta rewatch that, but I can definitely see it. The movie was finished in 1989. Salas swore in surprise when he got a call from Park telling him that it was done. Aww, that's so sweet. Uh, yeah, the plot for a grand day out, such as it is, it's not really the point. Wallace is dismayed to learn that he is out of cheese on the bank holiday. Knowing that the moon is made out of cheese, he and his dog Gromit build a rocket and fly to the moon. <laughs> the pair encounter a coin-operated robot. Essentially, there's like a, a, an oven that has arms. Yeah, he has a little peephole that he looks at, and he's got a drawer that he, that's kind of like bigger on the inside. He's kind of a jerky, a light piece at the start. He tries to smack Wallace over the head. Yeah, it makes no reaction when Wallace inserts a coin, but comes to life and clears off the picnic plates once uh, Wallace and Gromit leave the site. Wallace takes a big old chunk of moon cheese and spreads it on the crackers and all that. Yeah, and the robot glues it back together again. He's like a park ranger, sort of, I guess. Yeah, the robot discovers a skiing magazine, prepares a broken piece of landscape, issues a parking ticket for the rocket, and expresses an annoyance for an oil leak coming from the craft, <laughs> and expresses a desire to, to travel to Earth, you know, wants, know. To, wants to ski. When I was a kid and I watched it and the robot gets left behind, I got really sad. I'm like, he just wants to go skiing. Poor guy. Yeah, the robot wants to go back to Earth by sneaking up on Wallace <laughs> and attacking him with a billy club, but the coin runs out just before it can strike. Yes, Gromit's a little sleep deprived. He's like, wait, wait, oh, yeah, guy's gonna smack him. Wallace notices the inanimate robot, takes its club as a souvenir, inserts another <laughs> coin, and then prepares to leave with Gromit. Returning to life, the robot begins chasing Wallace and Gromit. Panicked, Wallace retreats into the rocket. Unable to climb up the ladder, the robot cuts into the fuselage with a can opener. <laughs> And then accidentally ignites the fuel line inside the rocket. The rocket throws off the robot as it explodes into liftoff. Trying to make the best of things, the robot fashions discarded pieces of the uh, rocket into skis. It waves goodbye to Wallace and Gromit as it skis along the lunar landscape. The end. The reception for this, it was an instant success. Lots of people climbed onto the robot. It's very expressive, despite the fact that it's just two Mickey Mouse gloves coming out of an oven. Yeah, I mean, he, like, you know, smooths his antenna, taps his fingers, gets mad that they're littering on his moon. Yeah, it's cute. Like a lot of other Ardman shorts, this comes from the school of waving your arms around as emotional expression. It worked. Wallace is fond of Wensleydale, since Park thought that Wallace's mouth did funny things when it said the brand name. <laughs> uh, unbeknownst to, to Park or anyone else associated with this film, the Wensleydale company was going under at the time, and its prominence in the Grand Day Out generated publicity that saved the company. Yeah, you know, when I was in the UK and I'd go to grocery stores and I'd see Wensleydale, I'd be like, oh, 
Wesley Dale. I would be like, ah, yeah, Alton Gromit. They saved the day with Wesley Dale. Yeah, I don't think Reese's Pieces actually needed the publicity in E.T., but Wesley Dale was on the ropes. Grand Day Out got an Oscar nomination for Best Animated Short, but it lost to Creature Comforts, which Park also directed. And you haven't seen uh, Creature Comforts. I haven't, but I think I might have seen, maybe it was Artemis or not, but it was a very similar thing where they interviewed people about grief and then had them depicted as animals. Like there was a man who was mourning the fact that he lost his leg in a motorcycle accident. So he was a, um, a grasshopper with a prosthetic that sounds like something Arvin would do oh, yeah. but i'm not a yeah i'm not sure what you're talking about there aren't too many incidences when in the oscars where a director is competing against himself <laughs> it, it seems to happen in the animated categories more than some of the other ones well i'll definitely have to check out uh creature feature i mean i'm a big fan of all the other Arvin stuff well, the next one we're talking about is The Wrong Trousers, which came along in 1993. Uh, uh. <laughs> this is everyone's favorite, yeah. mine included. <laughs> same, same, same. All right, to pay off his debts, Wallace lets out a spare bedroom to a mysterious penguin. Oh my God, can we just talk about the penguin's character design? Like in, in the unlikely event that you've never heard of Wallace and Gromit, you've probably seen the picture of the penguin that's shaped like a bowling pin. And he has a big orange beak and two little soulless black beady eyes. And when he walks, he makes little flipper noises. Yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> fantastic character design. Yeah. Like, like, he just feels wrong. Yeah, this is before he puts on the four-fingered red rubber glove on his head to be a chicken. <laughs> and he's unrecognizable. <laughs> wink, wink. You know, the penguin border just moves right into Gromit's room. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Sucks up to Wallace and just drives Gromit out of the house, both by making him feel unwanted and just blasting Hammond B3 organ music all night. <laughs> oh my day. god, yeah. Yeah, the penguin gets very interested in Wallace's techno trousers, these robotic ex NASA you know, uh, trousers that Wallace initially uses for walkies, but also you know helps around the house, uh, walking up walls and ceilings in order to repaint them and so on. Yeah, it's kind of funny because he bought them to kind of treat Gromit. He's like, now you look like somebody owns you. You know, I, Gromit is definitely not a pet. He may be a dog, but he is an equal partner in all of this. Wallace would wander into the street if Gromit wasn't around. Yeah, that's true. Anyways, the penguin rewires the trousers for radio control without Wallace's knowledge. He uses the electronics for dog book that uh, Gromit was reading in A Grand Day Out when they were building the rocket ship. There's a lot of like little cute continuity nods in these shorts. Yeah, meanwhile, Gromit sees a wanted poster for a fugitive named Feathers McGraw, who looks an awful lot like that penguin yes. with a red glove attached to its yeah, head. Yeah, it says, have you seen this chicken? <laughs> so Gromit's suspicious. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the penguin takes Wallace out on a little bit of a daytime rampage in the trousers, which tuckers him right out as Wallace sleeps. Feathers puts Wallace in the trousers and marches into the museum in order to steal a valuable diamond. He uses a remotely operated crane claw mounted on a helmet he placed on Wallace. Can I just say, claw? Yeah, one of those. Unfortunately, Feathers trips an alarm and Wallace awakens. Wallace is then marched back to the house and locked inside a wardrobe. A naughty pine wardrobe. 
Gromit tries to intervene. If Feathers pulls a gun on him, which is a, a bit that just gets me every time. I, I know, because, like, Gromit has a rolling pin. He's, like, he's ready to rumble. He, like, he pats it against paws, and then just out of nowhere, Feathers just pulls out a gun. Right from Hammer Space. Yeah, right from Hammer Space. And no matter how many times I've watched this short, and I've seen it a lot, it's just absolutely hilarious. It's just, he went from, like, zero to ten. <laughs> you know, locked in the wardrobe alongside him, Gra Wallace, uh, Gromit rewires the trousers and breaks out. He has Wallace chase Feathers around the, their model train set. Feathers is disarmed in the process, and then when Feathers' train collides with the trousers, Gromit traps him in the milk bottle. Yeah, honestly, I have to say that this is probably like one of the best chase scenes of all time. I have a hard time disagreeing with that. It, it's immaculately paced. Uh, more on that in a bit and yeah. its influence. Uh, yeah, Feathers is uh, locked away in the zoo. <laughs> Walls and Gromit pay their debts with the reward money. Uh, and the trousers escape from the trash and walk off into the sunset. Cause trouble somewhere else. Uh, production for this one. Uh, an early scene replaced Happy Birthday to You with For He's a Jolly Good Fellow when Gromit is opening his birthday card for copyright reasons. I think that that's so weird. Oh, that happy birthday to you. That was a copywritten song for like uh, almost over a century yes. after it was initially written. Yes, yes, that is weird. There's a lot of history behind that. Look it up if you don't know it. All right. <laughs> yeah, the Penguins Radio originally blared Happy Talk and How Much Is That Doggy in the Window, but it was replaced with the Hammond B3 organ versions of Tie Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree. Yeah, honestly, they're both earworms. No wonder Gromit couldn't sleep through that. The springboard for the story was uh, the Alec Guinness uh, vehicle, the Lavender Hill Mob, which also re uh, revolves around a lodger with a mysterious secret. I haven't seen this film, but you have, and you're a I fan. I have. Ooh, you know what? I have seen it, but I was confusing it with The Lady Killers, which is another Alec Guinness plays a criminal movie. But I have seen The Lavender Hill Mob, although I don't remember it as well. They both involve, well, The Lady Killers involve a train. So that's probably why I was thinking of that. Mm. Either way, don't let Alec Guinness into your house. Yeah. <laughs> I watched a documentary about the making of the wrong trousers a while ago. The thing that stuck out to me the most was Park described in elaborate detail how long it took for him to animate Wallace's mouth to say cracking toast grommet going on about all these little things that he added to it that nobody's going to notice in the first pass, but it made it funnier, damn it, it's worth it. Yeah, how long did it take him? A couple hours? Yeah, a ridiculous amount of time for two seconds, which... Mm -hmm. You know, goes into how laborious the process for these shorts were. Another thing that stood out to me is that when Feathers is directing Wallace to steal the diamond with the crane claw, you get these close-ups of him breaking out into yeah, a sweat. Yeah, he's just sweating. It's really funny. Yeah, it's pouring down off him, and they had to build a bigger Feathers model for those scenes by themselves because you, you he's couldn't. Small. Yeah, you couldn't animate the yeah. sweat on a, on the and regular like, model. And like Gromit, Feathers doesn't talk. He's just expressive when he waves his little flippers like the part where the alarm goes off he just kind of raises his little flippers up like ah! 
I'm messing it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he doesn't, it's pretty funny. He doesn't have the big expressive brow that uh, Gromit does. No. It's exclusively through his flippers. Yeah. <laughs> Park used an orange filter on the end credits to make them more legible, which is a decision that he deeply regrets. Perfectionist that he must be in order to get involved in stop motion animation. Oh, yeah, I believe it. Uh, reception for this one. Park considers this to be the best short. It, it, it is. Yeah, so not only is it the fan favorite, but the people who make it as well. The filmmakers for Toy Story described their admiration for the toy train chase scene, and they cited it as a direct influence on the moving van climax in Toy Story, which you know is what? easy to believe. Yeah, that, I believe it. And honestly, that scene holds up pretty well, too, for Toy Story. And I also, one of the reasons why I really like the toy train chase and i think that it works so well is because the sound editing is amazing like just the scene at the end where feathers is flying through the air you hear the and then the clickety 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 as gromit has to put the extra tracks on the ground because they've run out of tracks for the train and it's just very ingenious. You know that it won't work in, you know, real life, quote unquote, because there's no way that their little house will fit that much train moving so quickly. But damn, if it doesn't look really cool. Yeah, I was trying to see if the climactic fight at the end of Ant-Man was also modeled after uh, the, the wrong trousers. I couldn't find any information, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. And, uh, this is the most decorated Wallace and Gromit short. It won the Grand Prix at the Tampere Film Festival, oh. and also the, it won the Grand Prix at the uh, Anima Fest in Zagreb. And it won the Oscar for Best Animated Short in 1994. So are, are we going to talk now or after we talk about Close Shave as to why we think this is the best short? Eh, well, why don't you do it now? All right. Well, I think it's the best short because I think it has a very tight plot. I mean, a grand day out is good, but I feel like there are a lot of moments in it uh, that are very like, hey, look, we're doing stop and stop start animation, claymation. And there's just a few scenes where they're just kind of showing off that like, look at this, we can do this here. And it looks cool, doesn't it? Which it does. But, you know, you have a very memorable villain. The robot on the moon is funny. But Feathers McGraw, he has this very, like, absolute malice to him. And just the way he moves or the music changes. And also, it's really funny. Like, yeah, all the but... scenes with Feathers McGraw or, like, Wallace being oblivious and Gromit doing the, you know, stares directly at the camera when something goes wrong. We were laughing a lot through that one. It's it's good. <laughs> Feathers McGraw as the antagonist puts it over the top, but there, there are lots of little things. I, mm -hmm. I, I love the way the trousers move, the way they just sort of yes. tip up and down as they plod along. It's a very satisfying image. Yeah, also the sound, the sounds in this one are great. The, the way, the like I said the earlier, the train scene at the end, and also the trousers, like, they have some weight to it, you know? Yeah, that's a YouTube series I follow, uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe, where they deconstruct comics, and, like, the, the highest compliment it seems is, like, that character's got weight. <laughs> Yeah, so it's cute, it's funny, and, and you can kind of tell that they've, you know, gotten better at animating this and have a bigger budget. There's a very large step from a grand day out to the wrong trousers. Yeah, a grand day out started out as a student film and is an excellent student film, oh, yeah, but it's still it's a student great. film. It is. 
So I think that they kind of, they've grown into the characters in the world they inhabit. And I will say that even if they did build a rocket that goes to the moon, the wrong trousers does have a little bit more of Wallace's really goofy looking and like, wow, I can't believe he invented that quirky inventions. Yeah, it's just Rube Goldberg machines everywhere. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to live in that house? He has a jam gun for his home. <laughs> yeah, the third and final short we're talking about is A Close Shave, which followed along in 1995, so less of a break there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wallace and Gromit are operating a window cleaning business in this one. Wallace is doing a job for uh, one of his clients, a uh, wool shopkeeper, Wendelene uh, Ramsbottom, and is just instantly smitten with her. Yeah, and I think they were watching a, a doc documentary about this one i think that they, they said that it was important that for this one that they gave wallace someone to talk to who could talk back to him yeah this is the first one where some, a character besides wallace gets a speaking role mm-hmm. anyways uh Wendelin's evil dog preston is rustling sheep to supply the shop but uh one of the sheep wanders off into wallace's house and just makes a mess of things is eating things and Takes a long time for either Wallace or Gromit to figure out that there's a sheep in the building. Yeah, like, Wallace is still blaming Gromit for why things are suddenly missing. He's like, are you feeling peckish? Like, I don't really think that, you know, Gromit is going to eat the whole plant in the hallway. (laughs) When they do find the sheep, uh, Wallace places him in the nidomatic invention he has in his basement, which, after he bumps into one of the wrong levers, shears the sheep and knits its wool into jumpers. Uh, yeah. Wallace names the sheep Sean, which is a pun based on shearing sheep. Which, yeah. That took me a couple of passes because the accent was doing it for me. <laughs> Sean the sheep, he's really cute. He's also like a menace, even if he's he's not a bad guy like Feathers McGraw. He's kind of a small, fuzzy little badass for all the things that he does in this short. And he's enough in it. He's been popular enough to be a spin-off character. In some markets, he's more popular than Wallace and Gromit themselves. Uh, yeah, Preston, who has been peeping in on this the whole time, oh, yeah. Yeah, steals the blueprints for the Ninomatic, put a peg in that one. Mm-hmm. Gromit is wise to Preston's antics and sneaks back there to uh, free the uh, rustled sheep. Yeah. However, in the process, Preston manages to frame Gromit and he's in prison for it. Yeah, and it's kind of sad because, you know, Gromit gets in trouble a lot in this shirt because he's always doing the right thing while Wallace is just oblivious as to what's going on. Like, he lets out the sheep in the truck and then it looks like it's going to be fine, but then Preston has tied Sean in the bag. And even if Sean's been kind of a pain in the butt to Gromit, he still goes in there to let him out. And there's like a cute little moment in between two characters who don't talk. When Gromit gets trapped in the truck when the gate closed, Sean the Sheep leaps up and like goes, nah, like, it's okay, I'll be back for you, and then runs off. Yeah, the freed sheep just inundate Wallace's yeah, house. Yeah, they eat everything. And as they follow uh, the trial and Gromit gets sentenced. Uh, to life. <laughs> yeah, Wallace uh, and the sheep conspire to bust out Gromit and have him flee into the countryside. Yeah, Sean the Sheep uses a handsaw to saw the bars open, which always makes me laugh because Sean is like smaller than all of the other sheep. He has these little tiny stick legs and he just goes, meh, the whole time. 
Wendeline and Preston wheel on in and Lori to pick up the sheep, but Wendeline, she's had enough. She's been mm-hmm. manipulated by Preston for a while. She's tried to push Wallace away so he doesn't get involved in the Preston's web earlier in the story. Yeah. But she disapproves of Preston's plan to, instead of just rustling the sheep to shear them and make wool products, he wants to slaughter them and turn their, uh, process their meat into dog food. Yeah, she's like, this is evil! And the dog, it's implied that, outrightly stated later, that her dad invented Preston before he's confirmed to be a cyber dog! Yeah, Wallace and Gromit give chase in their motorcycle, but uh, Gromit detaches the sidecar and transforms it into an air plane after the sidecar goes careens yeah. off a cliff. And I just want to take a moment to say that this is also a pretty good chase scene. It's nowhere near as good as the one of the other wrong trousers but it's still pretty funny watching as, you know, gr- as Wallace gets to be kind of a badass and all of the sheep just make a big pile on the back of his motorcycle. He gets them to be organized and even if there's no foreshadowing that Gromit's little sidecar is actually also an airplane... You, you just accept it right away. You're like, yeah, I can definitely see Wallace doing that for his dog. Oh, yeah, it's a total Looney Tunes gag, which Wallace <laughs> and Gromit only does on occasion, but... Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we'll forgive uh, it. Oh, well, I think it's an enhancement, but yeah. anyways, Wallace gets trapped in the lorry during the chase, and then Preston pulls into the factory. Inside, a gigantic pneumatic has been remade into an automated meat processor. Yeah, Wallace is mad because he had patent pending on it. <laughs> Yeah, the sheep are loaded into a wash basin, but John manages to slip away and activates a neon sign that attracts Gromit's notice. Gromit attacks Preston with his little gun that shoots thick porridge, yeah. allowing Sean to suck <laughs> Preston into the nidomatic. His fur is removed, revealing that Preston is a robot who's turned evil. Yeah, he basically looks like a dog version of the T-800 without his army skin on. He kind of scared me when I was a kid, to be honest. Uh, even before he's sheared, he's moving very Terminator style. Yeah, but I didn't like him because he, he had like those big teeth. And he was like, ah! <laughs> yeah, he gets less scary when he's a robot, I think. I, I don't know. I thought he was creepy just a little bit. Although, honestly, Feathers McGraw, some of the suspenseful stuff scared me. Also, I was watching this when I was like six, and I was afraid of everything, so. <laughs> yeah, when the Ninomatic gives Preston a sweater made from his own fur. <laughs> it's actually pretty funny. Though. Preston stumbles into the control, sending everyone to the mincing machine. However, Sean manages to push Preston into the mincer, crushing him and stopping the device. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny that even in a life and death moment, moment. Wallace is impressed by the mutton o Yeah, he's like, good design. Yeah. Because he's, like, he's oh, an engineer to the end. Yeah, he is. <laughs> After Gromit is cleared, Wendelin stops by and shows off how Wallace reprogrammed Preston into a harmless remote-controlled toy. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, Wallace invites her in for cheese, but she reveals that she is allergic to cheese and dislikes it. That shatters all possibility of them being a couple in Wallace's eyes. Yeah. And he turns the cheese to mend his broken heart, but Sean got to it first. Yeah, and Gromit's just like, you deal with that. I've done everything with this short. He's like, get him, Gromit! Get him! And he's just like, eh, whatever. (laughs) Production notes for this one. Uh, Anne Reed, as I mentioned before, is the 
first character to have a speaking part besides Peter Salas. However, Nick Park didn't meet her until after the film was completed. Oh, really? Yeah, so I guess he doesn't direct his voice actors. He's (laughs) just after the fact. A Close Shave had a crew of 40 animators, which is twice as many as the wrong trousers got. Yeah. And, yeah, as opposed to the first short, which is just... One guy. One guy. I mean, you can tell. I mean, I really do like A Close Shave. It's my second favorite. I mean, I, don't, I, don't mean, I do I like A Grand Day Out, but at least here in A Close Shave, you can really feel uh, that they've really greatly improved. The world feels bigger and it's not just because Gromit, sorry, not Gromit, Wallace has someone to talk to. It feels very uh, cinematic. I read that the biggest set overall was the museum from The Wrong Trousers, but A Close Shave has a couple of bigger set pieces. Mm-hmm. And even though there aren't too many characters in them, it feels like a world. I mean, they always did. If you go through Wallace's house, even in the beginning, you get all these careworn objects, you get this mm-hmm. door that needs a paint job, and all of those little details that yeah. are easy to overlook. But if this is one of those things that you watch a jillion times, and for a lot of children it was, you know, these things start poking out at you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the airplane scene, the the car, the uh, the chase with the lorry, and I, th- I always just think of the sheep. There's a lot of them, and they all look alike, except for Sean, because he's got, he's small, and he got a little poof on his head. And he's got a jumper. He's got a jumper, yeah. Uh, made out of his own wool. <laughs> It feels bigger because you got to animate all of those sheep. But it kind of reminds me of the rabbits in Curse of the Were-Rabbit. There's just a lot of them, and they're really cute. And they're probably just kind of easy just to make a lot of them and have them move around. But I also think it's, speaking of the sheep, one of the funnier moments in this short is when Gromit flies by in his little airplane, and the sheep and Wallace all salute him, and he salutes back. Sean the Sheep was the breakout character from this one. He got a spinoff series in 2007, which is something in the neighborhood of 100 shorts, all of them around seven minutes long. I've seen a few of them. Yeah, and he has two feature-length movies, one released in 2015 and then the the, uh, most recent in 2019. And a Sean the Sheep spinoff, like his tiny cousin, is getting a movie pretty soon. (laughs) Yeah, Close Shave won the Oscar for Best Animated Short. Mm Mm-hmm. Curse of the Were-Grabbit won an Oscar for Best Animated Feature, and that's the full extent of uh, Wallace and Gromit Oscar wins. Yeah, what about A Matter of Loaf and Death? It got nominated, but it didn't win. What, did it, what beat it? Do you know? Uh, not offhand. I should have looked that up, but we, we were doing Loaf and Death. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe if we do Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which I would like to do eventually, maybe we can tack that on at the end. Yeah, yeah, why not? All right, themes for this one, as I've been seeding throughout, the charms of handmade animation. Oh, yes, for sure. I came across this quotation by uh, Peter Lord, uh, Ardman's co-founder, that I thought was pertinent for this subject. Uh, I always think there's a genuine magic to clay, which is very, very special. When you're watching a film, you should be totally into the characters and absorbed in the story. But in puppet animation, there's this little bit at the back of your mind that is marveling as well at the fabulous illusion that you're watching. Um, Yeah, even when I was four years old, I I somehow got into my head that those claymation figures were just some guy taking a figure moving it a little bit taking a picture moving it a little bit taking a picture i was like oh so much time went into that yeah i definitely i mean i 
think my dad just might have heard of Wallace and Gromit before and met my sister and I watched them. We would get them on VHS at Blockbuster back <laughs> in the day. So I, I really, you know, I have an extra appreciation for the characters knowing how they're made, even though when we are watching it, it is like you said, you're immersed into their world. It feels real. I feel like I could just, you know, step into, you know, Wallace's house would be a really cool place to explore. And you mentioned earlier the way that, you know, your brain accepts this illusion. I don't know if you saw recently, speaking of another very popular <laughs> character, do you see that Kermit the Frog was on The Masked Singer? Uh, no, I didn't. But I, I did want to talk about Jim Henson in that area as well, because yeah. you know, we discussed on previous Muppet episodes the idea that all this care was put into not only mm-hmm. building the puppet, but also in giving it a personality where it feels like an entity. Yeah. And even when you're four, or at least when I was four, that was cool. It was like somebody built that thing, and now they're operating yeah. it, making it move and be a thing. Yeah, and even I remember watching something with uh, Jim Henson and he says even if you can see me he's like and he gets Kermit to kind of he and Kermit are just hanging out and they're talking he's like you'll just eventually start to ignore me and just look at the puppet which is true like your brain is just like yeah Kermit the Frog is there and he's alive but on the episode of The Masked Singer I didn't I only watch this one clip because I you know I love Kermit the Frog he was inside this giant snail and the snail lost and so they take the hat off of the snail to reveal who it is and Everyone in the audience, all the judges, there's nobody in there. And the host, she just kind of goes, oh, my God, there's something in there. And then everybody is, like, watching, mesmerized, like, who is in here? And mind you, everyone who's been on The Masked Singer is everyone from, like, D-list celebrities to Sarah Palin, um, ex-Olympic athletes, you know, retired singers, two little green hands just stick themselves out of the hole. And everyone just goes, oh. <gasps> And it's just dead quiet for a second. And then Kermit the Frog pops out and everyone goes nuts. And, you know, even if everyone knows that he's a Muppet, that there's somebody controlling him. They're like, yeah, it's it's Kermit the Frog. He is participating on The Masked Singer himself by himself. <laughs> and they're interviewing him. He's even billed as like Kermit the Frog, Oscar winner, um, popular amphibian or something. And I think think that that's so cute and i think people are kind of disappointed that he got eliminated so quickly <laughs> and not only that but it's the third guy to, to be kermit who yeah. is kermit in that instance. Mm-hmm. But yeah the next thing i wanted to talk about with wallace and gromit and why i think they're so endlessly rewatchable not only just the visuals of it but the fact that all of them are just like low stakes hangout stories yeah they really are and you can feel that you know Wallace and Gromit have a real love and affection for each other even if I think Wallace takes Gromit uh, for granted sometimes and, and Gromit is so loyal and caring to Wallace it's sweet and even though the wrong trousers and a close shave has antagonist, and there are situations where it is literally life and death for the characters, oh yeah, it never feels intense. There's this very casual vibe to it where it still feels low stakes even when it's not. What I'm connecting that to, at least mentally, is Bob's Burgers, which is very much a hangout show. Oh where yeah, I agree. There are a couple of episodes where it seems like the Belchers might die if they don't pull it off. But- <laughs> 
more often than not, it's just like putting on a diehard themed musical, and it, it, it's not any more than that. And you just sort of, because you have affection for the characters, you can just sort of seg into that. And mm-hmm. if I want to put on something that isn't going to like Dress drain me emotionally yeah. after a long day of work, it, that's one of the go-tos and i think that quality is also in wallace and gromit it might be one of the reasons why so many british school children just got a vhs of it and just watched it every day and drove their parents nuts yeah and there were even a series there was a series of like little mini shorts called cracking contraptions and wallace would introduce like real engineering things from around the uk and i think that that's a you know a good way to get kids interested in that kind of stuff because it'd be really kind of cool to just be able to invent all sorts of crazy stuff that Wallace does, but I, I agree that it is like low stakes. Even though when I was a kid, I thought that the um, the diamond heist in the wrong trousers was very suspenseful. Mind you, I was like sick, so. <laughs> well, we talked about on the Matilda episode how, you know, sneaking out of the Trunchbull's house was like almost Hitchcockian <laughs> yeah. in, in, in its tension, even though that is a in some ways a low stakes hangout kids movie that takes place in a heightened reality where nothing seems to be too terrible, even when you're in the chokey. But, uh, <laughs> another big aspect of the appeal of these characters that I think is a big influence in why they've transcended so many national borders is just the way they move, the, the way they perform, because... The Walls and Gromit shorts are largely physical comedy, and it's difficult to overstate how much Salas's voice infuses Wallace, but, you know, the fact that Wallace and Gromit works in Italy and in Japan and in Saudi Arabia and all these various cultures that have wildly different languages and all the little local Englishisms might not work in those contexts. It's just, you know, the way they move, Gromit being rooted in silent era film comedy. Yeah, I think that that's pretty- Pretty universal. And even in, like, A Grand Day Out, there really isn't a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of moments of just quiet, low-key humor between Wallace and Gromit while they're flying the spaceship to the moon. One of the most appealing aspects of that short is just that every time that barely moving robot flails (laughs) his arms around or just gestures, it's It's funny. funny. It is funny. He has, like, little, like, Mickey Mouse gloves, and he's like... (laughs) waving his arms. When they're not flailing around, Wallace and Gromit is occasionally noted for its understatement. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the Artman people have compared their approach to American animation, which is incredibly dominant, and how wild and exaggerated most American animation is. But even in that context, it made me think of Chuck Jones's shorts, especially his later ones, where the characters just moved less and less than before. With, with Sniffles the Mouse, there was all of this Disney uh, imitation, very heightened. But when you get to, like, peak era Chuck Jones Looney Tunes, they aren't that loony. There's a lot of gags that are sold just by someone arching their eyebrow mm-hmm. in a way that Gromit sells most of his yeah, jokes. Yeah, and Gromit does have sort of the, you know, Jim looks into the camera on the office moments, which are pretty funny. He's just, like, it's not quite the fourth wall breaking, but it's kind of like Gromit's just like, ah, not right now, Wallace. You need to solve your own problem. <laughs> yeah, there are very few Wallaces out in the world, but we all feel like a Gromit every now and yeah, again. Yeah, I think that's true. And also, he's a dog. Like, dogs are good animals. He's like, a, I don't know, a beagle or something. <laughs> 
Another thing that differentiates Wallace and Gromit from uh, a lot of American animation is that uh, American cartoons, through a variety of reasons I've talked about it in the My Little Pony episode, uh, government regulations and moralizing and how only the villains get to be campy and ridiculous, which is why Skeletor is so much more beloved than He-Man. Yeah. But uh, Wallace and Gromit do not learn a lesson at the end of the story. There's no moralizing. Yeah, there isn't. There isn't. Ah, yes, we're now such good friends. We've learned to trust each other. Like... <laughs> You know, Wallace is going to be a ditz, and Gromit's going to be long-suffering, and yeah. the status quo just snaps right back to the, the normal, just like an American something. sitcom. Yeah, they're going to do something else the next day, have another adventure. Yeah, during Ardman's awkward and not entirely successful partnership with DreamWorks throughout the early 2000s, it culminated in Curse of the Were-Rabbit, and the DreamWorks people were giving them notes on to how, like, Wallace needs to learn something. He needs a character arc. He needs to find some kind of shortcoming that the adventure in the film allows him to overcome, because that's what we do in every movie. And Arvin's like, that's not how that's not how we roll. No, there, there really isn't. You don't need one for something like this. I always like all the other Arvin stuff, too. And you look at something like Flushed Away, which seems like the Aardman film that DreamWorks had the most uh, influence over. And yeah, there is a character arc. And there is a lesson learned. And there is like that dance party ending that's in every goddamn CGI film from that period. Yeah. Honestly, though, I haven't watched it in a long time. And it, it, we do, you have it as a double feature with Curse of the Were-Rabbit, I think, at some point. I don't know, because I feel like I bought that for for a birthday or something. But I liked Flush the Way because mostly because Ian McKellen voices the frog or the toad. He's the toad. His cousin is the frog. And, and he just gets to be kind of, you know, campy. He's just like, prepare to meet your maker, your ice maker. And he's going to like freeze the rats or something. It's nowhere near as good as Chicken Run or Curse of the Were-Rabbit. But I would watch it again. Maybe my opinions will be different because I haven't watched it in a very long time. I, I've seen Curse of the Were-Rabbit a bunch of times. I've, I've watched Flushed Away once and mm -hmm. I was very disappointed. Curse of the Were-Rabbit is great and I am going to vote that we can talk more about it in detail on its own episode because it's kind of interesting as like the Wallace and Gromit universe evolves and the storytelling in there but even if you think that they work really well as shorts I do think Curse of the Were-Rabbit is a pretty solid movie it's also also an excellent horror movie as well yeah we could get more into that in a bit but um mm -hmm. so many of the ways the characters are constructed and the way you know they're very clearly not modeled after silent film comedians particularly mm -hmm. uh, Harold Boyd I think those can work in 90-minute bursts. You know, a, mm -hmm. a lot of the great silent films are in that uh, length. But, yeah, there is something about putting them through just like a just a 20-minute short that uh, it does seem to be the perfect way for those characters to be conveyed. And we watched this as a triple feature, basically, before we recorded this. Yeah, just banged right through them. Yeah. I never get tired of these. Yeah, I can... me neither. I was like, like, if you asked me to record this without rewatching them, I would have been like, but I want to watch them with you. <laughs> like, we gotta. <laughs> Anyways, that blows through my notes. Is there anything you'd like to add about these shorts before we conclude things? I want to hear a little bit more about why you think The Wrong Trousers is the best one and why it's your favorite. 
kind of got to hear more from me about that than you. Well, I did talk a bit about how I like the penguin, yeah. the, way the, <laughs> the, the way the trousers move, and you know that's a big part of it. I, I think it also helps that it was the first one I saw. Uh, you know what? I think, no, it wasn't the first one that I saw, but it was the one that I always picked the most, because you could pick three of the three Wilson well grommet shorts at the Lockbuster, and my dad would be like, you can pick one. It was always the wrong trousers. Yeah, that's the one that endeared the characters to me. I didn't mm-hmm. see the other two until pretty far down the road. And yeah, that, that, that's probably a big part of that. A lot of when I'm exploring the catalog, often the one that introduces me to the person's style is the, is the one that I end up retaining the longest. That makes sense, though. But no, I, I like Wallace and Gromit, and I, I picked them because I felt like it was something different. And I know that you enjoy them, and I'm trying not to torture you with, with my pick. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I just think that they're enjoyable, and it, it's true. They're, they're, they are something that you just want to, you know, watch over and over again. And, and I do love the attention to detail. And, like, this is a, a little piece of trivia. I think you probably have heard of it about Chicken Run. The reason why all of the chickens have a scarf or a necklace on is to hide the seam where their heads could, the, could be removed from the model. Oh, that's very Hanna-Barbera. Yeah, it is. Because all those characters have collars. Yeah, but also, you never, unless you knew to look for it, you never would. You'd be like, okay, this characterizes the chickens. Makes sense to me. (laughs) Yeah, form and function. Yeah, form and function. Well, if that's it, one more episode in the can. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. We'll (laughs) talk to you next time. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.